everyone. My name is MCM and you are watching Saved by Grace podcast, but right now it's just a channel. I do have a podcast, but it's on a different channel. But anyway, if you need to understand that, then you could probably check my other channel. <laughs> Anyhow, really what I'm doing today is I'm putting out two um, sermons and I'm making them kind of one. And they're both by John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur of the Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. I remembered all that. Um, he's talking about the church. Surprise, surprise. But he's giving you explanations about why certain things that are happening with the church in this day and age is not exactly what the Lord would have decided he would want the church to be. But he also gives a description on what the church could be. And he also tells us what people who are in the church, like the ministers, the teachers, the different gifts in the church and how they are supposed to be acting or working in the church. In other words, he gives a good description on what it's supposed to be like. So remember, first he's going to talk about the church and the state of the church, and that is the different types of ministries, fake ministries, real ministries that are falling by the wayside or missing the mark. And then he's going to speak about the purpose of the teachers, the preachers, the men of God, basically, goes even into um, elders. And this is a really, really important video for believers. This may not be the type of thing that a person who is not a believer wants to watch because a lot of this stuff is frankly just going to be alien to them. Anyhow, hope you enjoy this. I'm asking you, please, 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 if you like my content, please subscribe. I'm having a difficult time getting subscribers. The way YouTube works with the analytics and the way you put your descriptions in and there's a lot more that even actually goes into it. It makes it very difficult for people who have a small amount of subscribers to get their video out to the masses. So if you believe that this is something that you believe other people need to see, then I'm just asking you, please like it. Please subscribe it. Anything that I put on that you find that is worthy of the family of God watching, I'm asking you to please support it. So then at least it lets me know that I'm doing something worthwhile because it didn't just take me five minutes to put this video together. Even though I'm not the one who's actually teaching it, but I put a lot of extras on it so that it is watchable, that it, it, so it is interesting. And when I do find things, I will put them on this channel so that I can help you learn more about our Lord. Thank you and take care. There are many... I suppose, offerings to us about how we can grow a church. We have to keep reminding ourselves that Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. The only one who can grow a church is Jesus. He's the only one. And He said, all that the Father gives to Me will come to Me, and I will lose none of them but raise them at the last day. The Lord will build His church. So I want you to turn to the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at the book of Acts in a little more general way than we might usually. In chapter 2 and verse 39, I draw your attention to a sort of a foundational point here. 
This is the day of Pentecost. The gospel has been preached by Peter. The promise of the gospel is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children for now and going forward into the future, and for all who are afar off, you, meaning the Jews, and your children, all who are afar off, meaning the Gentiles. That's a euphemism for the rest of the world. The promise of forgiveness of sins, the promise of the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which is what identifies the church. It identified the initiation of the church among the 120 in the second chapter of Acts when the Holy Spirit came. This promise of the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is a promise going into the future for Jew and Gentile, and then this, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. That is the theological reality that the church is built when the Lord calls someone to Himself. Jesus said, no man can come to Me unless the Father draws him. The church is the historic gathering, starting on the day of Pentecost, of all those whom the Father calls to Himself, a saving call. And we see it begin immediately. Two verses later in verse 41, those who had received His Word, that is, the Word of Peter regarding the gospel which he had just preached on the day of Pentecost, were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. There were 3,000 added that day, or about 3,000, because the Lord God called those people to Himself. That's how the church is built. It is not about human ingenuity. It is about the divine call, what theologians call the effectual call, the call that is an irresistible call. This is the great story of church growth. The Lord builds His church as the Father calls and saves people through faith in Christ and belief in the gospel. That's the church growing. But by what means does it grow? How does it grow? From a spiritual standpoint, there are no techniques given here. There are no methodologies given. But there are spiritual disciplines, spiritual realities on which the church grows. These we must know if we're going to be leading the church, even if we're going to be in the church, and we have to have the discernment to recognize artificial false efforts to make the church grow by the power and wisdom and cleverness of men. It is a work of the Lord. The Father's involved, the Son is involved and the Spirit is involved. The triune God is growing the church. Now the first mark of the church as it grows is a transcendent message, 
a transcendent message. And I use the word transcendent not to say that it's a heavenly message, although it is that, but to say it transcends culture. It transcends culture. This is so obvious that it may be embarrassing to people who have forsaken it. The church is born under the power of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing the Word concerning Christ, Romans 10. You, says Peter, were begotten again by the Word of truth. God uses the true gospel to save. And that plain gospel message transcends all cultures, all languages, all nations, all societal norms, all tribal traditions, all education status, and all economic status. It transcends everything. Now remember, in biblical times, there was not a global village like we have today. Basically we're all exposed to the world. So there is a kind of flattening out of culture. Culture is now defined by media, and media is ubiquitous, so there is a similarity among cultures that did not exist in ancient times. There were hard lines drawn between clans and tribes and city-states and nations and language groups. They had their own traditions. There were lines that were not crossed. They had all of their own customs, all of their own forms of expression, all of their own art forms. There were deep-seated, very distinct, very unique, cherished, ingrained cultural perspectives. Didn't matter. The apostles preached the same gospel. It had no effect on the message. It was irrelevant to the message. Whether talking to Jews familiar with the Old Testament, uh, Gentile proselytes to Judaism somewhat familiar with the Old Testament, or whether you're preaching in all those locations as the apostles later did with particular interest, the apostle Paul did, but there were many others as well. The message never changed, never. The modern call and cry for contextualizing the message of the gospel is a curse. It is a curse. The apostles and prophets of the early church took their transcendent gospel message as it was given to them from Jerusalem to Rome and all the stops in between. They crossed hard lines, national lines, social lines, cultural lines. Never did the message change. All the way through the book of Acts, it is Christ, Him crucified and risen again, and faith in Him alone saves. It is the Word of the Lord, and it is the only message that saves. The church grows with its proclamation of the transcendent gospel, crossing the world. To design an event for unbelievers, great. It's called an evangelistic event, an outreach, great. We need to do that. 
But to design a repeated event for non-believers and call it a church is to misrepresent the truth that is not a church. Church is made up of believers. It's a spiritual crime to assemble non-believers and call it a church, a crime for which a minister might give account to God. So how does the church grow? By what means does it grow? It grows by the proclamation of the transcendent message. Salvation comes through the proclamation of that message by the power of the gospel, power of the Holy Spirit. It's marked by a regenerate congregation. The Lord builds His church with true believers. Oh, yes, there's a false church and false churches and false denominations and false forms of Christian religion. But the true church is regenerate. And if we understand the gospel and believe the gospel, then our view of the true church is that it is an assembly of true believers. Now there's a third very important element in the means that we see in the book of Acts by which the church grows, and it is this, a faithful perseverance, a faithful perseverance. That is to say this, that the church, when it is persecuted, does not stop. It does not stop. We do not seek to be unpopular in the world. We don't seek that. In fact, I think you can make a case out of the book of Acts that the early church was very popular, very popular. In fact, if you're in the second chapter of Acts, you can just look at verse 46. Uh, Day by day, all these 3,000-plus believers are continuing with one mind, and they don't have a building, so they just go to the temple and have church every day. And what are they doing? They're having communion. And then they go from house to house, and they're having all their meals together, and what marks them is gladness and sincerity of heart. I mean, this is, a, this is an incredible group of, of over 3,000 people proclaiming Christ by by the Lord's table every single day, full of gladness, full of sincerity, transformed lives, praising the Lord and having favor with all the people. Yes. Yes. It should be that way. They should say they're different, they're joyful, they have peace, they have hope, they have love. First Timothy 3.7 if you want, says if you want to be an elder in the church, you must have a good reputation with those outside the church. The world ought to be able to see goodness, righteousness, love, virtue, character. But alongside that, that respect for integrity and virtue comes a very aggressive, violent hatred for the message. They'll like you until you tell them everyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ is headed for eternal hell forever, and everything changes. The message is narrow. It is exclusive, it is confrontive, it is condemning, it is judgmental, 
it generates hostility. Jesus said in John 15 and 16, they hated me, they will hate you. I'm just telling you, they will hate you, they hated me. They killed me, they'll kill you. And what we see in the early chapter of Acts, on the one hand, is respect, and on the other hand, they start killing the apostles. They kill James. They kill Stephen. And the slaughter begins, and it becomes a great slaughter very early in the book of Acts. And one of the principal motivators of that slaughter is a man named Saul. So on the one hand, the world is in this tension that they admire the transformation in our lives and the joy, peace, love that marks us. And if we never say anything, everything will be fine. But when we do what we're supposed to do, which is to alarm the unconverted, when we press the issue of judgment and, and the gospel, and it's the exclusivity of the gospel, when you say anyone who denies the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in Holy Scripture is on the way to eternal hell, that is a very, very narrow message. It's offensive, it's exclusive, it puts all false religion in the same category. None is better than the other. In fact, none is better. In fact, none is good. They're all bad. And we are called to alarm the sinners. We are the world's smoke alarms. And we need to be going off. We need on the one hand to be admired, on the other hand to be feared. The power of God demonstrated in the early church created favor with the people when they looked at the lives of believers. But when they spoke the narrow truth of the gospel, they put themselves in harm's way, grave, severe danger. The unbelieving world does not like the message. They might like us, they don't like the message. The possibility that non-Christians would be comfortable in a church is absurd. It's absurd. Charles Spurgeon said this, the bishops of God's church the professed leaders of the Lord's hosts, the pretended followers of the Redeemer, have done more damage to the church than all the church's enemies. If the church were not a divine thing protected by God, she must have ceased to exist merely through the failure and iniquity of her own professed friends. I do not wonder that the church of God survived martyrdom and death, but I do marvel that she has survived the unfaithfulness of her own children and the cruel backsliding of her own members." Then he went on to say this, 1888, the new plan is to assimilate the church to the world and so include a larger area within its bounds. By semi-dramatic performances, they make houses of prayer to approximate the theater. 
They turn their services into musical displays and their sermons into political harangues or philosophical psychological essays. In fact, they exchange the temple for the theater and turn the ministers of God into actors whose business is to amuse men. Is it not so that the Lord's Day is becoming more and more a day of recreation or of idleness, and the Lord's house either a place where there is more enthusiasm for a party than zeal for God? Ah, me, says Spurgeon. The hedges are broken down, the walls are leveled. To many there is henceforth no church except as a portion of the world, no God except as an unknowable force by which the laws of success and happiness work. And finally he said, this then is the proposal. In order to win the world, the Lord Jesus must conform Himself, His people and His Word to the world. I will not dwell any longer on so loathsome a proposal." That's destructive, deadly threat to the church. The Lord's not trying to fill up His church with unbelievers. The truth is He's trying to keep them out. You say, are you kidding? No. There's a fourth means by which the church grew. One, a transcendent message. Two, a regenerate congregation. Three, a valiant or faithful perseverance through persecution. They accepted that persecution and they grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. The fourth one is an evident purity, an evident purity. Now look, with so many signs and wonders healings at the hands of the apostles. And that happened in the apostolic era because there was no New Testament yet. So of all the teachers roaming around town, how do you know who's telling you the truth? How do you know who's from God? You find the one who healed the lame man. You find the one who raised the dead. You find the one who can heal people. There is evidence of God's power. And that means God's truth is coming from those men who possess God's power. So the church now is very attractive. It's attractive to people who are sick. It's attractive to people who are uh, uh, troubled in distress of any kind. Uh, they're, they're flooding to the church like people do today to fake healers. So the Lord has to protect His church. He has to protect His church because, as Paul said in Corinthians, a little leaven, a little leaven leavens everything. He's got to protect His church. He's got to, he's got to stop the flow of non-believers. Isn't that interesting? He's got to stop the flow of curious non-believers. And it has to be pretty dramatic. And it is, chapter 5, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. What's the, what's the point of that? Back up one verse, two verses, Joseph, called Barnabas, owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's the problem. Day of Pentecost, you've got all these people who've come into Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they're, they're from other countries. And when the Holy Spirit comes and the church is formed, all of a sudden they're in the church and there's no church anywhere else, so they stay. So you have all these strangers trying to find 
survival in Jerusalem among the believers. How were they going to care for them? They, they wouldn't be employed. Even true believers who lived in the city lost their jobs. So they began to sell land to give money to the support of those who needed help. This Joseph of verse 36 sold his land, gave all the money to meet the needs of these people. Along comes Ananias and Sapphira. He and his wife decide we could look good in front of everybody if we did something like that. He sells a piece of property under the pretense that he was putting it all in front of the elders, in front of the apostles, rather. But he kept back, verse 2 says, some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. He is bringing in only a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet under the pretense that this was everything. That's how they used to collect the offering, I guess. Everybody came up front and gave it to the apostles. Peter stopped him and said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Whoa! You really don't want to be called out in church. None of you do. And then Peter says, he's given divine knowledge of this, apparently, while it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? You could have kept it. You didn't have to sell it. That was voluntary. After it was sold, was it not under your control? You could have given a part of it. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have lied, not to men, but to God. The lie is you said it's everything and it's not. You say, that's a small thing, isn't it? I mean, he gave. If he sold a piece of land, it must have given a lot. This is a big thing. Sin in the church is a big thing. After he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last. What? He died. God killed him. He was killed. He was sort of killed at the offering. Great fear came over all who heard of it. And what was the fear? God is in this place. Yes, this is serious business. This isn't a joke. This isn't a comedy. This isn't theater. This is reality. The Lord killed two people in front of the entire church to show how serious He was about purity. Verse 12. Here's the point I wanted you to see. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, all in Solomon's portico, which was one big area in the temple courtyard. The healings went on. But look at this. None of the rest dared to associate with them, even though the people held them in high esteem. <laughs> you don't want to go to that place. People die there. The Lord accomplished what He wanted. He stopped unbelievers coming to church for the wrong reason. He stopped unbelievers coming to church for the wrong reason. The Lord desires the holiness of His church, and that demands a believing church come together based on the gospel.
We're talking about the church, and understanding the church is a very foundational and very basic necessity for those of us who make up the body of Christ. I, I, I am convinced that most Christians, most professing Christians, don't really understand the church. Uh, there are uh, people in denominations, traditional denominations that essentially are, are run or operated the way they've been operated for years and years, and uh, people are familiar with the way they operate, but it may not necessarily reflect a clear biblical ecclesiology. And then there are all of those little pop-up churches that are all over everywhere all the time uh, that uh, by uh, profession call themselves churches, but when you look a little more closely at them, you wonder if those people really understand what a church is. And I'm not so much talking about the size of a church, although I am convinced that that the larger the church, at least with some sense of reasonableness, the more likely it is to be able to provide the ministry of the spiritual gifts that God has designed for His people. In fact, I'm, I'm not convinced that having a whole lot of little groups and a whole lot of little churches all sort of carving out their own corner really brings together the body of Christ in its strength. And I'm, I'm also not convinced that it is the clearest and most powerful testimony of our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. When, uh, when the church gets fragmented into little groups which all have their own pet philosophy, we send a very confused message to the world, a unified church, fully flourishing uh, with manifold gifts of the Holy Spirit and extensive ministry, uh, makes an impact on the world and, and a declaration of of the unity in, in the body of Christ and its collective power as all the gifts are operating. And I think churches today struggle with an identity crisis. There, there was a time when they, were, when they were struggling with a philosophy, and now the struggle seems to be with this sort of entrepreneurial attitude that anybody, anybody who chooses to, anybody who wants to can just sort of launch a church out of nowhere and stylize that church to whatever preference he has. And, uh, and that's legitimate. As uh, the professing church struggles to figure itself out, one can only guess that if the picture is unclear to the people who profess to be Christ's, how unclear must the picture be to the outside world? So we've been talking about that, how to recognize a church, a, a real church, a church with impact a church that is faithful, a church where things are happening that honor the Lord in, in a full and rich way. So let me go back and tell you what we've already covered. That kind of church will be marked by the absolute authority of Scripture, that that church that understands that it is, um, it, it is called of God, that it is built by Christ that it belongs to God, has been purchased by Christ, that it is responsible to be where heaven comes down, that it is the pillar and ground of the truth, that church will live under the absolute authority of Scripture. Now I don't want to back up and get caught up in some of these things because I can preach on these same truths for a long, long time. 
But we started there with the absolute authority of Scripture, and then we talked about the priority of worship, and then we talked about doctrinal clarity, then we talked about spiritual discernment, and then we talked about the pursuit of holiness. Those are the first things that are the marks of a church. When you find a church that understands who it is, this is what you will find, people who submit to the authority of Scripture, people who worship from the heart people who are clear on doctrine, people who by virtue of their submission to the Word of God and doctrinal clarity have discernment, and people who live lives pursuing holiness. And they understand that it's not an emotional thing. Paul said, I beat my body to bring it into subjection, that obedience is an act of the will, and the will is informed by the mind, and the mind has the revelation, obey and be blessed. All right, so we covered those five already. Now, th this next point gets us sort of out of all of that theology for just a moment into something that's very practical, and yet it's clearly New Testament. A true church will be marked by a plurality of godly leaders. It'll be marked by a plurality of godly leaders. Can I add a plurality of mature godly leaders who are called in the New Testament elders? Y you know what elder means? It means older people older people, the plurality of godly leaders. Turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4, and we can actually pick it up in verse 11. He, that is Christ, gave to His church some as apostles and some as prophets. Now that's chronological. Uh, the first leaders of the church were the apostles, the, the twelve minus Judas plus Matthias plus Paul. Uh, they were the original leaders of the church, and you remember that Paul went everywhere ordaining elders in every city. Subsequent to the apostles, there were certain preachers or prophets uh, that the Lord placed in churches, and the New Testament epistles refer to them as well. Uh, they weren't apostles, uh, that is a very unique office. They had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. They had to be called specifically by the Lord Jesus. Even Paul had his calling on the Damascus Road. Uh, so the next generation of leaders in the church that follow the apostles are the prophets, and, and they fill a gap between the apostles and the elders. Uh, they were the ones to whom God gave revelation for the church. Uh, sometimes they preached new revelation, sometimes they reiterated revelation that had already been given, but they were the early preachers. Then following them chronologically, the Lord gave to the church some as evangelists and some as, I think the best way to, to acknowledge this is pastors, teachers, pastor teachers. It can be pastors and teachers or pastor teachers. So that's kind of the chronology. Starts with the apostles, then the prophets, then come the leaders of the church, the, the remaining ongoing leaders of the church once the apostles and prophets have passed away. We know they passed away because Ephesians 2.20 says they were the foundation of the church. The foundation was the apostles and prophets. They disappear, and in their place come evangelists and teaching pastors. And that's permanent. The church today, still led by those who are evangelists and teaching pastors, those whose responsibility it is to mobilize the church for evangelism. They become our missionary leaders. They become trainers of others to evangelize. They become, uh, they are not only individually. Uh, uh, 
passionately committed to the proclamation of the gospel, but mobilizing the church for the gospel. I, I would say it's this simple. When you think about pulling together leaders for the church, they should fall into these two categories. They are either evangelists who see the responsibility of extending the gospel into the community and around the world, or they are teaching pastors who see the responsibility to nurture those who come to Christ and build them up in the faith so that out of those who are built up in the faith, there can be another generation of evangelists and teaching pastors, and those are the two gifts. So the church then is led by these who are identified as evangelists and, and teaching pastors. Now they also are in, identified in the New Testament in the in the term elder. Elder simply identifies the fact that they're the mature ones. Of course, in the early church, uh, they had to mature pretty fast because they were all very young in the faith. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, we read concerning the apostles, concerning Paul and uh, those who were traveling with him, that they appointed elders in every church. They appointed elders in every church. Praying with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This was the pattern, and we could show it many other places in the book of Acts. Elders in the plural. You never see the word in the singular except when it refers to the elder John who is an elder. But whenever an elder is spoken of, it's always a plural word. This is because the church is to be led by a plurality of mature, godly men. In the twentieth chapter of Acts, uh, you go over to verse 17, and it says regarding Paul, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now this becomes established. The, uh, the gifted uh, pastor-teacher. Uh, the, the gifted teacher, and we, we see there are also teachers from 1 Corinthians, that's clear. So you have pastor teachers, teachers, and evangelists. They compose this group called the elders of the church. And Paul calls the elders together. Verse 17, when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, and he describes how he ministered. And this is the pattern for how they are to minister as well. He sets the model for their ministry, a model of humble service, warning, watching, teaching giving the full counsel of God, shepherding the flock of God which the Lord has purchased, verse 28, with His own blood. He tells them, be on guard for yourselves, guard your own life. Paul says that to Timothy, take heed for yourself, and then guard the flock. Hebrews says you'll give an account for guarding them. You are an overseer. You are an overseer. You elders are also overseers. Elder describes his age, his maturity. Overseer describes his responsibility. And pastor describes his personal devotion and care of his flock. These are the godly leaders. And their ministry goes along the lines defined in Ephesians. Uh, they are responsible for mobilizing the congregation for evangelism and also feeding them the Word of God. Every church needs to be led by a plurality 
of these men. The stronger the men, the stronger the church. The more mature the men, the stronger the church. Uh, the, the more faithful the men in overseeing, the stronger the church. The, the more compassionate and caring the shepherds, the stronger the church. It's a flourishing church. I would think that people would people who are in Christ would would run to a church with that kind of soul care and that kind of feeding and leading and responsibility. What are the characteristics of these men? How does someone qualify for this? Turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. How do you know if you're called to this? Well, it's a trustworthy statement. It's axiomatic, spiritually axiomatic. If a man aspires or desires the office of overseer, that's elder, pastor, overseer, whatever term you use, it's, it's axiomatic that men will desire it. So this is a very important principle. L let me just lay this one in your mind. How do you know you're called to this? Do you have some kind of esoteric uh, supernatural experience? No. You do this because you aspire to do this. And if you aspire to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work. It's a noble work. It's a glorious aspiration. However, that in itself is not enough. That's not enough. Uh, there, there are lots of people who would say, I desire to do that, but you have to be qualified. And here come the qualifications in verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. What does that mean? That you have nothing in your life that calls your integrity into question, that you've done nothing in your life to bring reproach on the name of Christ or scandalize the church. And it starts with the husband of one wife, which literally means a one-woman man. Um, you say, well, I could be a pastor then because I only have one wife. No, that's not the point. The point is that the one who is a pastor, the one who is a pastor-teacher, the one who is the leader in the church must be a one-woman man. That is, he must be a man fully devoted to the woman who is his wife. That's a moral qualification. Why is that the head of the list? <laughs> you tell me why. How many scandals do we know about at that level? must be temperate, wise or prudent, respectable, hospitable. And here's the one, the one skill, just one skill. Everything else is a character qualification, a moral qualification. There's only one skill, didactikos, skilled in teaching. Why? Because that's, that's the only thing that separates me from you. The rest of you men, are you supposed to be faithful to your wife? Uh, yes. Why is it sorted out for me as a pastor that I have to be faithful to the woman who is my wife? Because that sets the example for all of you. That's no different than anybody. Aren't you supposed to be temperate, wise or prudent, respectable, hospitable? Pastors are not to be addicted to wine or pugnacious, 
meaning people with bad tempers who get mad and angry, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. They must be able to manage their own household well, keep their children under control with all dignity, because if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He can't be a new convert or he'll become conceited, fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he doesn't fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let me ask you a question. Should that be true of all of you? Of course. The only thing that sets me apart from you is the one skill, the one gift that is given to the elder, and that is skill in teaching. That word also implies teachableness because the most effective teachers are the most teachable people. I will tell you this, the greatest teachers are the greatest students. If I have been at all used in your life to teach you, it is because I have submitted myself to others to teach me. An unteachable man is the least effective teacher because he thinks he knows everything. The most effective teacher is the most teachable man. Teachable is even inherent in that term didactikos. Some commentators would say that's the primary strength of that term. So this is how the church is led, by a plurality of godly leaders. And since the church, listen, is to be dominated by the Word of God, the more skilled the teachers, the more strong the church. And the more teachers, the more strong the church. You could never have enough teachers. The, the leadership of the church then are the feeders and leaders and overseers and caretakers of the souls of the flock of God who also have the responsibility to protect them from corruption inside the church and wolves coming from outside the church. And according to Hebrews 13, this is such an important duty that we will give an account. Listen to verse 17, "'Obey your leaders and submit to them.'" That's your responsibility for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They will give an account. Please note, this is male leadership in the church. Uh, Paul instructed Timothy, I permit not a woman to teach or take authority over a man, but to be in subjection, to be quiet, and if she has a question, to ask her husband. It isn't that women are inferior spiritually, they're not. They're equal spiritually, and Christ is neither male nor female. We're talking about divinely designed roles in the church. So we're talking about the marks of a church, absolute authority of Scripture, priority of true worship, doctrinal clarity, spiritual discernment, pursuit of holiness, plurality of godly leaders. Give you one more. Commitment to discipleship. Commitment to discipleship. That is to say, there is a commitment to the full spiritual development of every believer. Against the bizarre background of the modern church, I have to comment, it is amazing that there is a new trend to tell people that their church exists to bring people to salvation, and once they're saved, they need to get out. They need to get out. In fact, pastors 
who literally have said, and I could give you quotes on it, if you've become a Christian, get out. If you expect us to feed you and to do expository messages and to give you Bible lessons, you're in the wrong place, get out. Very popular, very large churches with that kind of mantra. And yet, what is the Great Commission? What is the Great Commission? Listen to the words of our Lord, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore, go therefore and make what? Make disciples of all the nations. How do you do that? You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then you do this. You teach them to observe all that I commanded you. That's what you do. That's the Great Commission. You don't go and give them the gospel, have them pray a prayer and then kick them out. That's not the Great Commission. Oh, by the way, did you notice? It doesn't say, teach them to feel emotional about the cross. It says, teach them to observe everything I've commanded. Put them under orders. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, which is to say, I know it's a challenging task, but I'll be there with you. We have to be committed to your spiritual development. Not enough to, to, to be preaching and teaching sound doctrine and clear exposition of Scripture. We can't be satisfied with the sermon. I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied with any sermon I ever preach. I, that's why I don't listen to my own preaching because I, all I think about is how much better it should have been. But my, my task is not over when I've handed the truth off to you. That, that's not the end of my passion. That's, that's not all I want. That's only the beginning of everything. The Apostle Paul had this longing in his heart, and he said, I have birth pains to the Galatians. I have birth pains until Christ is fully formed in you. I have birth pains until... That's, that's severe agony. It's hard for men to identify those, but, but we've heard the complaints enough to know that it's a very <laughs> painful experience. Paul saying, I have birth pains until Christ is fully formed in you. It's like, as far as a man could understand, giving birth to someone. It's an agonizing thing until the child is born. I have birth pains until Christ is fully formed in you. Paul writes to the Corinthians and expresses his, his desire for them. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, he says, I write to you in verse 14 as beloved children, you have... Uh, countless tutors in Christ. You have a lot of people that have spoken into your life, been like a tutor, like a teacher, but you don't have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I care about you in a way that, that nobody, nobody else does because I was your spiritual father. I care about you. And He cares about them so much that He says to them, uh, in verse 19, I'm going to come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'm going to find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. I'm going to come and check on you. I'm going to come and find out the true story about you. In fact, um, He even warns them that when He comes, He doesn't want to come with a rod. He doesn't want to come and inflict pain on them. He doesn't want to come and have to discipline them. He wants to come and embrace them and love them. 
That would be his desire. Verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Why does he care? They're in Christ. They're going to heaven because part of being a pastor and a shepherd is this commitment to the full maturing of the believer, to the full devotion of the believer. Why do you think he went through what he went? Why had he been in Corinth after eighteen months and then gone away and written four letters to them? Four letters. Two of them are not in the New Testament. Two are in the New Testament. The other two he refers to. Why all of this agony? Why all of this pain? And it, it was profound pain dealing with that church. I mean, they're going to heaven, essentially. You could say that. But when he writes to them, for example, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 15, I most gladly spend and be expended for you. And if I love you more, am I to be loved less? This is a hard thing. Now, the more I love you, the more I spend my life for you, the less you love me. What is that about? Paul says to Timothy in... in uh, and this is, a, this is such a simple and yet a, a, such a rich passage. Uh, Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, "'You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you've heard from Me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Take everything I taught you and teach it to others. Teach it so fully and so well that they could actually teach others.'" You have four generations, Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also. The truth is passed down. The saints are nurtured and developed and strengthened and built up. A, a real church is committed to the full discipleship of believers, to take them in the language of 1 John 2 from being spiritual babies to spiritual young men who are strong in the Word to spiritual fathers who know God in an intimate way. You want to see that progress, that spiritual development. So let's go back where we started and wrap up in Ephesians 4. Why does the Lord give to the church? apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer children. You are responsible for the full development of that spiritual life. That's the work of the leadership of the church, till we all come to the fullness of Christ. A real church is completely devoted to the spiritual development of the precious people for whom Christ died.